What's up, guys? It's your host, Yavitz Djurjevic, coming in with another episode. Today, I interviewed Freddie Scott, and man, do we have fun recording this. So, Freddie's a great overall guy. He's a uh, former NFL player, pastor, father, and uh, founder of Unlock the Champion, which is an organization that really focuses on character development in young men, particularly in the realm of athletics, college football, and NFL, etc. So I think you guys will really enjoy the conversation. Like I said, we had a lot of fun recording and a lot of good nuggets and several quotes that we got throughout the conversation. So uh, without further ado, here's Freddie. Freddie, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. So for everybody listening, I've got Freddie Scott with me. He is the founder of Unlock the Champion. He's a former professional football player, pastor, father, husband, a man of, of many traits, and uh, just a, a just an interesting guy all around. So Freddie, give a, give a background to folks listening on who you are. Wow. Um, I'll start... Uh, as far back as you all could probably go is so my day I was born was the day oh, my wow. dad scored his first NFL touchdown. Okay. So I'm actually a second generation NFL player. My dad played 11 years. Uh, then I was fortunate to play college football at Penn State, starter on Joe Paterno's last undefeated team. Uh, was fortunate to play four years in the NFL with the Falcons, Colts, and Lions. And then after that, transitioned into full-time ministry as an assistant pastor for 13 years. Then ended up writing a book called The Dad I Wish I Had. Huh. That, that Super Bowl and Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy wrote the forward to. And that opened up so many doors for me to start speaking across the country on fatherhood and leadership and character. And, and so now for the past seven to eight years, I've been working with the NFL, NFL Players Association, the ACC, the NCAA, all on character, leadership development, performance development for executives, coaches, staff and student athletes across the country. All right. Well, that's fascinating. So how did you come up with the title, the dad? You said the dad I wish I had. Yeah. So what, what's the story behind like, that? Literally, I was at church serving and, you know, I just believe I heard God specifically say, write a book called the dad I wish I had. I, I was literally in the back of the sanctuary, minding my own business. And I just heard that title hmm. and ended up uh, writing the manuscript, uh, ended up calling three people. One of those people was uh, a guy named Jim Caldwell. And for those of you that are football fans know that he was Tony Dungy's uh, senior assistant pastor, uh, sorry, senior assistant coach with the Colts and took over after Coach Dungy retired and then later on coached the Detroit Lions. He was my receiver coach at Penn State. Okay. And so when I called him to tell him about the title and the book and just what was on my heart, he said, Freddie, this is so huge. I can't tell you how important this issue is. He said, 80% of the guys that we draft in the NFL come from single parent homes. They have no idea what it means to be a man. They have no one modeling manhood in front of them. And yet, from public perception, they're the epitome of what it means to be a man because you're an NFL football player. Yeah, you're as masculine as you can get. You're as masculine as you can get, and they need help. Mm -hmm. And so it just opened up some great dialogue and conversation, uh, realizing how huge not only that issue had been for me personally, but obviously how huge of an issue this is nationally. Wow. So let's take a step back. Let's go back. You said the day you were born, your dad scored, scored his first touchdown. Yep. So he, he had a really lengthy career, 11 years in the NFL. It's 
a lot of people don't know that, but what's the average? Two years. Yeah, two years. So it's very different than NBA or NHL or MLB where you can six or seven years. Right. So 11 is a, especially back then. Oh, yes. that's, that's a long time. 74 to 83 and even a year in the USFL. Oh, wow. Where Steve Young was his quarterback back in the day. So he, fortunately, he was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. Okay. Uh, he played college at this small school in Massachusetts called Amherst, the Ivy League D3 school but still was drafted by the Colts and then ended up with a great career. And he was inducted in the same class as John Elway and Marcus Allen in the College Football Hall of Fame. Wow. So what was it like growing up? You know, your dad's in the NFL. Um, talk to us about that childhood, that experience as a young boy. All right. So you have two sides of the coin. You have the one side of the coin that you're getting free Nike shoes shipped to the house. He had My dad had one of the first Nike contracts. So it was him, Art Monk, Harold Carmichael. Uh, Ahmad Rashad, you know, you name it, all these Steve Largent, all these great receivers back in the day, Nike did this whole campaign with receivers. And so we're getting these free shoes shipped to the house, uh, birthday parties on the field, going to the locker room during training camp or after home games. Uh, just what you would imagine being a really always the most popular kid in school because everybody wants to go to your birthday party or want to come to a game with you. Uh, but then the flip side of the coin was, you know, my dad grew up without a dad in his life. The, mm. the man that he thought was his father passed away when he was two years old. Okay. So he grew up in a fatherless home, then found out in his 50s that his biological father had been alive, but oh, no wow. one had told him who his real biological father was until obviously it was later on in life and uh, actually within the last few months of his biological father's life. And so that was just traumatic to think, I thought my dad wasn't there. Mm. And wait a minute, my dad was here, but I was really robbed of opportunity to have a relationship with him. And so that just caused a lot of turmoil personally for him and obviously for us as a family, because like I said, you know, there's a lot of expectation and a lot of opportunities for NFL players out there. And so, you know, our family struggled a little bit as he tried to figure out who he was uh, in the midst of all the temptation, in the midst of all the opportunities out there. And so on one side of the coin, you have this amazing thing that everybody wished they could be in my shoes. And then the other side, you know, I wish other, I lived in other homes because both parents were there or yeah. dad would come home consistently or uh, just a lot of the basics that you wish you had. And hence the title of the book, The Dad I Wish I Had, that I wish I had uh, more opportunities to cultivate relationship, to have more conversations with him. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate with the fact that sometimes your relationship with your dad isn't what you wished it was. And, mm. and man, I wish I could have had this or that. And that's what we address. Interesting. So it, it almost, and I haven't read your book, but it sounds like you're, you had these extremes within your father. You had the extremes of the cool and the NFL and all, but then the other extreme of that is dad's gone. Right. Dad's practicing, you know, like you said, temptation on the road, especially, I mean, especially back then in the seventies and eighties, I mean, good Lord, it's, I don't know about the NFL, but I know like the NBA was like basically one giant cocaine party. Well, I don't know about that side of the story, yeah. but I will say because there was no social media and there was no proof, so to speak, yeah. uh, the behaviors within the NFL 
uh, at, or professional athletes or entertainers have not changed for 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. The only difference is people can t- pull out their phone and take a picture of you yeah. <laughs> uh, while you're doing what you're doing. Uh, so that being said, you're right. There were these two entirely different extremes and, and it caused a lot of uh, confusion at times, but then also a lot of resiliency as well, mm. because I realized what I wanted personally, the type of family I wanted to lead for myself, the type of father that I wanted to be, the husband I wanted to be. And also for full transparency, my relationship with my dad is amazing. I said I've given the manuscript to three people, contacted three people. My dad was one of those three people. And it actually writing this book actually helped our relationship because in his words, he said it was the first time he was able to see his family through his children's eyes. Mm. And so his experience was obviously his experience, you know, with my mom, but then he was able to say, whoa, okay. And now I see how this decision or that conversation, you know, was perceived by my kids and man, I didn't see it that way. Yeah. And, and it created great opportunity for dialogue and understanding on both of our parts to realize, you know, he wasn't the villain or as much the villain that I thought he was. There was a lot of just clarity and closure that we all needed. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the key to just in life in general. When we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, the dialogue in society right now is very angry and negative. I have a theory that part of why it's so angry and negative is one, because that's easy. It's a lot easier to call somebody a name than it is to actually try to understand them as a human being and where they're coming from. That's right. Um, two, when you choose to not choose to, or you don't have the, ex- the opportunity to understand somebody or to learn from somebody the dehumanization aspect, it, you create an echo chamber for yourself and then a story that you're telling yourself in your head becomes mm-hmm. more and more of a reality right. on all sides. Right. And I think that's an interesting concept. I wonder what the world would be like if all fathers and sons sat down and said, hey, here's kind of where you screwed up. Here's where you did great on both ends. Right. And, and looked at it. So, Well, in business, you do it. You have 360 degree, degree evaluations. Yeah. Where – Hey, it's not just how I perceive myself, but hey, I'm going to give this evaluation. I want to know, you know, what you think of me and what can I do better in communication and leadership and structure, you you name it. You know, even Jesus did it. He said, hey, who do the people think that I am? So it's 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 always important to not think so highly of yourself that you feel like you're impervious to getting critique and feedback because everyone has a blind spot. Yeah. Everybody has tendencies that will lean them towards one way or the other. And at the end of the day, not having a complete picture and understanding of what you do and how you say, and even sometimes what you don't do and what you don't say, that matters sometimes just as much. Yep. Not hearing your voice, not being present, uh, not being intentional can have just as much of an impact, if not more than what you do say or do or, or do. So Uh, You're exactly right. In fact, uh, I love this quote. It says, failure to understand will result in the failure to being understood. Mm. And so to me, I I hear that as my first job is to try to understand the person uh, or the argument that that I feel like there's a disconnect. And if I take the approach of being open minded if I take the approach of, okay, let me try to understand where you're coming from. It doesn't mean that I agree with what you're saying or agree with what you've done, or you even agree with your stance on an issue. I don't have to agree with you to talk to you. Yeah. 
But I can seek to try to understand your perspective, understand your fears, understand your concerns. And then from that, we can then find a way to build a bridge between the two. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't start with trying to first understand, you will never be understood and you'll create your own echo chamber and feel like nobody really understands you either yeah. because you haven't taken the first step to open up your ears, to open up that bridge of communication. Yeah. It's like I always say at the end of the podcast, if you've got a constructive criticism and the keyword is constructive, don't complain unless you're ready to offer a solution. Like I have zero patience for that. Well, from anybody, it's like, if you got an issue, state your issue. And then what is your solution to the issue? It might not be the final solution, but let me hear what you can offer. Um, so let's fast forward to, obviously you have a good enough high school career playing ball to go to Penn state. Uh, you know, obviously play for a national championship team. Talk to us about the college experience there. Talk to us about how you evolve as a man from high school and then through college, before you get to the NFL with all the things that, that you had to work through already. Yeah, it was um, an amazing experience. So I'll start sort of with the recruiting process. I was born in Miami. That's where my mom's family is from. Okay. And the year I was a senior, the University of Miami had just won a national championship. So Dennis Erickson flew up to my house and showed me the designs of their new national championship ring. Uh it obviously was amazing and growing up we're being born in Miami and having family down there, you know, that was a dream come true to, you know, be a part of that type of dynasty. Yeah. And then going to high school in Detroit, uh, there was a kid named Chris Weber. Who, <laughs> just some kid. Just some kid. Yeah. Uh, who was a year ahead of me. We went to the same high school. So he, of course, is an all-American dream team, all that for uh uh, Michigan and nationally for basketball. I was all American and all state and, and number five receiver in the nation coming out of high school. And so he was my host visiting Michigan. Everybody knew I wasn't going to go to Michigan state. Yeah. Uh, you know, no offense to any of you Spartan fans. It's, it just wasn't my thing. I, I couldn't wear a uniform that matched the field. Okay. So <laughs> that's how I, that's how I chose when I was a kid. I'm like, Ooh, your, your uniform matches the field. That's how I chose Michigan over Michigan State. So anyway, okay. as a fan. Uh, so uh, Michigan recruits me in the weekend they have me go. Desmond, of course, wins the Heisman Trophy. Oh, Heisman wow. Trophy, and the Fab Five plays Duke at Chrysler Arena against Bobby Hurley, Christian Leitner, Antonio Lane, Grant Hill, all these guys. And um, I remember they walked me into the office and they said, hey, Freddie, uh, you know, we know you've wanted to be a Michigan Wolverine you know, your whole life. You know, today your dream can come true. Oh, wow. And uh, that just sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Hmm. That like, hey, we're here to make your dream come true. Uh, and so I said, well, thank you for the offer. Let me think about it. Let yeah. me make a, I didn't want to make a decision emotionally because, I mean, it was. So you make bad decisions. Very, very, very difficult to not pick up the pin at that point. Yeah. Then I go to Penn State. Never went into the football locker room. They never showed me my jersey. They didn't show any highlight reels of previous national championship teams. None of that. I'm going to academic meetings because I wanted to major in engineering, specifically architectural engineering. And so we're going to the engineering buildings, meeting with the deans and different professors, just getting a, a lay of the land for there, connect with a lot of other good, you know, quality Christian football players and uh, that were on the team. It really felt like I met a whole new group of brothers. Hmm. And the thing that had allowed me to choose Penn State, I was walking on campus 
and there is a the number one running back in Michigan at the time was with me at my visit to Michigan just yep. a couple weeks prior. And my recruiting coordinator at Penn State says, hey, have you heard of this running back? And I said, yeah. He said, yes, coach sent us his high school game film and he looks amazing on film. I said, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. Yeah. He said, yeah, but when we pulled up his high school transcript and saw his grades, he wouldn't handle it here academically. So we're not going to call. Hmm. I said, wait, wait, wait. You're not going to call him? I said, no, we're not even going to pick up the phone. I was just with him at another school. Yeah. And here's Penn State. A good school. A good school. Yeah. Michigan's not, you know, just some random college that, that everybody gets into. It, it, they said, you know, we're not going to call him. And for for the first time, I felt like a school saw me more than just an athlete. Hmm. That I wasn't just a football player, just a receiver, someone that can help you win games. But you s- understood me. Yeah. what was important to me at holistically. And that's the reason why I chose Penn State. It was an amazing experience. Uh, Joe truly ran a program to build people from the inside out. You, you were going to enroll as a boy, but you're coming out a man. You would understand punctuality and time management. If, this, if the meeting starts at nine o'clock, but everybody's in the meeting at 845 and you walk in at 850, you're five minutes late. Hmm. Because you made the entire team wait five minutes because you weren't with your team. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it just the life lessons. Um, and I've seen fifth year seniors, if you fail your exam, your midterm exam, you're not playing the bowl game. Wow. You know, so if we're playing against a team and he feels the other coach's job is on the line, okay, second and third team is going to play. And really? We're going to run up the score. Huh. We're going to condense the. We're going to condense our playbook down to maybe ten plays, and just keep it. We're going to win, but we're not going to blow them out. We're not going to go out of our way to embarrass the no. other the, the individual. Never. And you know it was frustrating for me as a player because I'm like, man, we need to call this play. I yeah, can yeah. do it. And yeah. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, no, we're okay. Yeah. Um, but holistically, he saw things that not just on the field, but from a development standpoint. I remember having meetings with him. Uh, there was an issue with the scholarship athletes and and some of the benefits that we felt like we needed that we didn't have anymore. And he said, he said, yeah, I remember when we first came up with the whole concept of scholarships. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Did he just say when we came up? Because he had been, he's so, he was so old yeah. that he was a part of the whole deal. Because originally it was, you know, it wasn't something that minority students were able to participate in. And he said, we did this to give, you know, students, athletes that wouldn't have had the financial wherewithal to go to college, but they had the grades and the athletic ability to give them a normal college experience. Wow. So if the normal college experience on campus was you could go on a date with your girlfriend, you can do your laundry, you can go to the movies, you can do this. Well, if you're on scholarship, we're going to provide you the same experience because, you know, your parents wouldn't be able to provide that for you. And so hearing all of that and hearing his perspective on the overall development of what college athletics should look like in America today. And how it should be something that allows 
young men and women to be able to go have a great experience and then graduate with a degree that's meaningful um, is something that I'll never forget. Uh, we had a 20 year reunion of our Joe's last undefeated team, the 94 team. And of course, Joe is gone. He's passed on. But his wife, Sue, was there. Mm -hmm. I had not seen Sue Paterno for easily 23 years. Soon as I walk in the room, Sue sees me. She says, Freddie, how are you doing? How's Adna? Adna is my mom's name. Hmm. She didn't have a, a, a cliff notes and cardboard, you know, or, or postcards with everybody's names and parents' names. She genuinely remembered my mom's name. Now, can you think of how many thousands of kids they've recruited yeah. over the course of 50 something years? And yet she remember she, she wasn't even the recruiter. Yeah. So to me, you're talking about some of the most authentic, genuine people that it doesn't matter if it's me or Franco Harris. Um, We've all have had the same experiences of development through that program. And that helped prepare me for what the NFL and anything else would bring. Well, the, the word that strikes me as you're telling that story, I can see the passion escalate in you as you're telling it. And it's, it's incredible to listen to is character. Just building character. Uh, if I had to guess, I never met Joe Paterno, but if I had to guess... If he made you a promise of some sort, you didn't need a contract. His word was good enough. <laughs> so true story. So I was, um, you know, I wanted to go to school for engineering. And so I had not committed yet to Penn State because yeah. I was going through the process, submitted my application. And it's like the day or two before you have to commit. And so he calls me and says, hey, Freddie, just want to check in on you. Just make sure everything's OK, you know, because. I thought you enjoyed your visit here and, you know, thought you would have committed to us. I said, oh, I loved it. You know, really do. I, I was just waiting to find out if I was accepted into the School of Engineering. Now, I was ar- already an Army ROTC Scholar Athlete of the Year, uh, had already had some offers for some other. I went to private uh, prep school, college prep school in Michigan. Yeah, what, so I could something day school? Right? Country day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, that. Uh, and so I could have gone the academic route and... Uh, he said, you're just waiting to find out if you're in the engineering school. That's it? <laughs> oh, you're accepted. You're accepted. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Next thing I know, FedEx, Freddie Scott, you've been accepted in the Penn State School. So I guess whoever was holding on my application, yeah. he made sure that, hey, you better get get this guy this yeah. acceptance letter so he can uh, get this consummated. But um, he was not a person that you had to worry about yeah. not doing what he said he would do. I love that. So you spent four years or three years at Penn State? Four years. Okay, four years. And then you, you go into the NFL. Mm-hmm. What is that transition like? Because you go – so you, I think you're either the third or the fourth former NFL player I've had on the podcast. And, and every single one of them, there's a couple of themes that they all mention. And one of them is transitioning from college to the NFL where you're going from, hey, we are one college unit to – Hey, I'm part of this unit, but I am my own brand and business. Mm-hmm. Talk about that transition. Yeah, it's you're you're not a part of a community. You okay. know, on college, it's it's 
we are playing against this school. Yeah. And it's, with that we isn't just the team and the coaches. It's the student section. It's the alumni. It's the fan base. It's Thursday before the big game. The tailgates start driving in. It's, you know, Friday. You feel the buzz on campus and you're starting to, you know, get the juice flowing a little bit. Saturday morning, it's all the way live and everybody's amped up and ready to go. You go to the NFL. Oh, you got, you know, fight songs and pep rallies and all this stuff in college. You go to the NFL. People might make it there in time for kickoff. Maybe, maybe, maybe that they're coming to be entertained. Yeah, there's no the same level of passion isn't there. And and now different franchises have done a better job than others. Green Bay yeah, that's has like more their, of a community yeah. support feel. The Chiefs this year have really you know galvanized you know that their organization and franchise. Uh, you, you know, so you have certain fan bases that it's not the same, but have more of a you know, we're not just showing up to be entertained. Yeah. We're not just showing up to watch the other team. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a huge transition because now if you needed the external stimuli, if I needed the alumni, if I needed the student section, if I needed, you know, the pep rally, if I needed all that stuff to get me up, you had none of that going into the NFL. Yeah. You have a meeting, you get on the bus you get in the stadium, the stadium is empty. They might be doing some mic checks on, on the things, but you are totally having to find your own gear internally mm. to learn how to turn that switch on and play full full go as soon as they blow that whistle. And there is no external stimuli at all. It's all you just going to do your job. And yes, you might be a part of a 53-man roster, and, and even within the NFL locker room, there are subgroups within the team. Yep. So a guy may sign a contract to be, go to training camp, but they know I'm not really on the team because I'm probably going to get cut. Mm. Then you have a guy that, hey, I hope I make the team because I think I was drafted or they gave me a pretty significant free agent deal. And then you have the guys that's on the active roster yeah. that, hey, yes, I'm not only did I make the team, but I'm going to dress out on game day. Then you have the other group of seven, eight that I'm on the active roster, but I don't even dress out unless there's an injury. Hmm. Then you have a group of guys that are the development guys, the practice squad guys that, you know what, I'm on the practice squad, but if I get hurt I'm, or that I could get injured. And so there are some guys that literally <laughs> on the day of making the active roster, you would think that's a very good day. Yeah. So a lot of times guys will try to they start moving out of the team hotel that they stayed in during training camp and they'll start maybe trying to pair up to find a roommate so I don't have to spend as much money, you know, coming yeah. to and from. Well, there are guys that they're told you don't want to room with this guy because he's probably going to be going to be here a couple of weeks. Wow. Or you're told you don't want to sign a six month contract uh, with a lease because you're probably not going to be here that long. So. Think about the mentality of you go from this euphoria of I made the team to I don't even know how long I'm going to be here. So hmm. you're coming to work every day and the outside, you're a part of this organization. But on the inside, I'm not really a part of this group. It's the ultimate meritocracy. Uh, what have you done for me now? Not even lately, but now. Um, there's also the psychological aspect of the ego in the NFL, because 
I remember reading about this, but because you don't see the players' faces the way you do in the NBA, they're not as recognizable. So there's also that. It's like I might be a great player, and but people might not recognize me in, in the street, so I've got to wear a chain with my number on it, and i got to introduce myself by my first and last name when I meet somebody. Well, so. it, and, and it becomes very difficult when you start talking about – you talk about transition. Yeah. It's because, you know, you've been defined as an athlete – probably ever since you were a blue chip in high school, sometimes even before then. I was about to say, and maybe so younger. your entire identity since middle school, high school, college has all been centered around what people can see, how fast you can run, how far you can throw, whatever play you made. But you're so much more than that. You're a human and being. You're actually a person. Yeah. Right. And, and what ends up happening is if I become so consumed with that as my identity when it's over that transition isn't just difficult but for some it's almost impossible because there's nothing else out there that can replace that entire game day experience yeah and so helping individuals you know i went through that from a kid i dreamed of being an nfl player all the way through being able to live that dream. I remember the first time warming up and seeing Jerry Rice on the other end of the field, warming up at Candlestick Park, and there's Deion Sanders and Steve Young and Emmett Smith, and it's and you're living your dream, but then you realize, wait a minute, this dream only lasted a few years. Yeah. So now you're 25, 26 years old, but you've already lived your lifelong dream. Yeah. That's a lot of life to live. And you live double back. the average. Right. Yeah. Right. And you had so, a successful career by all measure. So imagine the thought process of being 25, 26, 27, thinking your best life is behind you. Gosh, that sounds terrifying. What else can I find that will give me that sense of purpose, passion, satisfaction? And it's not just all financial. Yes, you, you like getting paid for what you do, but it's also the mentality of knowing I'm in the top 1% of the world. And what I do. And what I do. Yeah. I am one of the best, period. What else can I do that I could be one of the best in the world at it? And that is what makes that struggle so difficult because I made a decision to maximize my gifts in this area, but what other gifts do I have that I can maximize where I know I could be just as good and dominant yeah. in this other area as I was in football or any other sport. I think that's interesting connecting it to what you said about your experience under Paterno and the, the character building that that organization really focused on. So I interviewed uh, Jay a couple, couple podcasts ago and uh, Jay Robertson, and, and he was saying, he brought up a good point. He said, one of the issues within the, the sport of football and the transition out of it is you, can't, you have to be somewhat of a savage on the field. I mean, it is a mentality of, you know, Jay explained it and said, you know, I played center offensive line. Somebody else put their hand down on that line. They, I took that as a disrespect. Like, you think you're better than I am. Right. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to let you embarrass me. Uh, and, and it's that mentality. And the reality of it, aspects of that mentality transition into other parts of life. But you know, tackling people in the middle of the street, probably not a good eh, idea. Not so much. <laughs> yeah. So how do you, how do you, how do you overcome that? A lot of times what we found, that's one of the difficult issues with transition for players is that's a stress relief. 
Mm-hmm. So, so let's peel this back to sort of make this entire conversation come full circle. We first started talking about family and broken homes. Yep. So a lot of times the reason why guys are so successful on the field is because of what they're running away from in their home. Mm. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm not validated. I'm not affirmed. And, but I become affirmed by my coach. I'm validated by my coach. I have these anger issues and I can take it out on that player legally on, yeah, yeah. on, on the field. Yeah. It doesn't solve what I'm running away from. It doesn't solve what I might be going home to. Mm. But it gives me an outlet to be able to vent and get some of that stuff out in a somewhat of a healthy way. But now when the game is taken away, I don't have a, a similar outlet. Military families have something very similar experience when they transition from active service. Uh, I've had the pleasure of going to Colorado Springs and speaking to our uh, military soldiers and, and they're coming from Afghanistan and they express some of the very same issues that, wait a minute, I can't just go out and take my gun and just go blow something up. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I still have the same feeling. I still have the same frustrations. I still, so we start working through what are the other coping mechanisms? What are some of the other healthy ways where you can, you know, relieve the stress, relieve the, the frustration or whatever it is that you're going through? One, how about addressing it? Yeah, talking about it. How about that, first of all, not running away from it? How about being able to constructively find some healthy coping mechanisms to allow you to be able to deal with what you're going through, find the healthy outlets to be able to either vent, let people know how you're feeling about that, or finding other hobbies that allows you to be able to blow off some steam, steam, so to speak, but still allows you to be healthy as opposed to just because there's a difference between healthy and normal. Okay. Elaborate on that. So what may be normal for you may not necessarily be healthy. Okay. So we're talking about habits and, and the environment we create for ourselves. So my habits that I have either adopted based on the circumstances around me mm-hmm. or the things that I've been dealing with, I may find it normal to be able to deal with the stress level. I may find it normal that I'm always have a quick fuse. I might find it normal mm. that I, I, I really don't believe that people have my best interests at heart. Cause you're probably going to burn me at some point in time. Yeah. That might be my normal, but that's not necessarily healthy. Okay. And if you go back in time, that wasn't your normal. It had to be created at some point. It was created because of something that happened or someone did or said something. So I created a wall around me as a defense mechanism to keep me from experiencing a similar pain. Mm. So if I identify what pain I'm trying to avoid, I can then grow from that. So and so think of it this way. At Penn State, when we worked out, we did a total body workout, but every muscle group would be one set to failure. Oh, wow. And you couldn't grow until you failed. Gosh, just thinking about that, I hate those workouts. But that, I, I, so imagine every muscle group, quads, hamstring, uh, squat, bicep, pull down, bench, power lat clean, row, right, yeah, power right. clean, everything to failure. But if you don't fail, you don't grow. Yeah. If you don't fail, you didn't maximize your limit because every exercise. So what we did is you would have to get at least eight reps 
but no more than 12. So if I could, if I couldn't do eight reps, the weight was too heavy. Yeah. If I can do 13 reps, too light. It was too light. So you had to find this balance of I'm pushing myself, but it's 11. But once I hit 12, I can't get 13. But guess what? I just graduated to the next weight up. Yep. Because the next weight up, I should be able to get at least eight. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, most of us don't condition ourselves in the same way, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, or any other way. We see failure as something to avoid. Mm. We see pain as something to avoid. All pain does is identify a barrier. All pain does is identify an area of opportunity for growth. But if I always avoid it, it will always be there. There's a there's a podcast host. His name is escaping me right now, but it's a real estate podcast. And he says, we don't have failures. We have seminars. <laughs> we learn from, from all of those. That's, that's really interesting, though, because what you said about the what's normal might not be healthy i think so many people could benefit from just even hearing something like that yeah so I, look i know you work with uh the rookie symposium and and the nfl still to this day and, and college football what are you trying to teach these young men because these young men like you said the behavior in the nfl hasn't changed over the last 40 years okay you've got really young really athletic men who are in an environment where they have to be aggressive on a day-to-day basis to keep their job, to keep, you know, food on the table, whatever it may be. They're also young. So that, that's part of something that we forget. I feel, you know, yeah. I'm not that old, but yeah. I, I think back at 23 year old myself and I'm like, Oh my God, I was an idiot. What was I thinking? So you, you make him a millionaire, <laughs> you make him young, you make him aggressive because that's how he gets to be a millionaire. And now let me put him in a suit with, you know, 50 something other aggressive dudes. What are you trying to teach them? Yeah. Well, really, I just try to point to who they really are. Okay. And so one of the beautiful things, and it's not just athletes, it's the coaches, it's the development staff, it's executives that have a passion for leading people effectively. It's the same conversation. What is your real vision of yourself? Mm. Take a moment and think about who are you? And are you living up to your own personal moral standards? Mm. So I usually will have everyone grade themselves in a number of categories. So on a scale of one to 10, 10, you're perfect. One, you're anything but. How are you personally? Are you living by the values that you say are most important to you? When I ask you, hey, what's really important to you? And people usually say their faith and family. To, okay. If I... Put a mirror up to your life and we go back the past 30 days. Will I see that reflected in your decisions? Yes or no. How about your relationships? How are they doing? Are they the reason why you'll accomplish your long-term goals or will they be the reason why you won't? Are they, are you, are you flying with other eagles? Are you on the ground with the pigeons? Pigeons are always on the ground dealing with crap. Mm. Or is your group pushing you past yourself? Mm. Then grade yourself either academically, if it's, if it's a student athlete. I've had some student athletes say they've never been given the permission to be a great student because they thought they were only an athlete. Mm. 
That's the only thing they were given permission to do. That's one hell of a bad mindset. But if it's the only mindset that I've been given. Yeah, I get it. Because I've never seen anything else. Yeah. Then I'm going to do what's modeled. Exactly. Or expected. Yeah. And then just grade myself, you know, either professionally in other areas. And so now once you start looking inside instead of outside, okay, let's start dealing with me. If I'm not living up to the values that I say important to me, why not? And what can I do over the next seven days to go up one number? Okay. So if I'm a five, why am I a five? And what can I do this week to be a six? Yeah. Now the goal for this is not to be tens across the board because it's impossible impossible to be perfect. Yeah. The purpose of it is to be aware of where you are. Yeah. If I know I'm a five, a seven, an eight, you know, then you know what? I can be intentional and make sure I'm not going, I'm not having a negative trend. Yeah. So if my relationship with my wife isn't where it needs to be, it doesn't have to stay that way. I just have to be intentional for it to cultivate and to grow to where I want it to be. Yeah. But if I don't track it, Guess what? You're going to look up and you're going to get a Dear John letter yep. or you're going to wonder, how do we get here? Well, no one is being intentional and in identifying exactly where we are and then being intentional to move forward in some way. That self-reflection is so important. And the writing it down part, I think, is key of what you discussed. Do you ever come across this issue? I'm going to use an anecdotal story. But so, you know, who Paul Pierce is, mm-hmm. and you know, who Kevin Garnett is. So I heard Kevin Garnett say in an interview that Paul Pierce is the most confident human being he knows because Paul Pierce might miss 15 shots in a row. And in his head, he thinks I made 15 shots. Oh, that wasn't in and out. That's like, that's it. Oh, the, the rim must be broken, which in, in the environment of basketball, if you're going to be Paul Pierce, if you're going to be as Shaq called him the truth, that's what you got to have. The problem is, and I'm not saying Paul Pierce does this. I've never met the man, but I'm saying if you transition that into other aspects of your life, where you might be missing 15 shots with your kids or 15 shots with your wife. And you're thinking, Oh, I made 15 shots. Right. Are you coming across that to where you almost have to help them silo different areas of their life? Well, that goes back to what we talked about before, as far as having the two way conversation. Yeah. Failure to understand will always result in a failure to be understood. So as a leader, my, and I just said this last night to a group of, uh, of my NFL community, my job is to be a trusted voice to those that I'm called to lead. Mm-hmm. But people choose every day who you're going to listen to and whether or not I'm going to submit to the authority of your voice. Mm. Okay. That's a I can't force you to listen to me. I can't force you to do what I tell you to do. In fact, I love this quote. And a Hall of Fame cornerback, Aeneas Williams, said this. Uh, he said, a mentor is not someone who gives you advice. A mentor is someone whose advice you follow. Wow. Okay. So as a leader, whether or not I'm a father, even a husband, even though I have the right, cause I'm the head of the house, but if no one's listening to you, doesn't matter. then you're not really leading and you can't lead by title alone. The title just gives you opportunity. But if you're not walking in the attributes required of the people around you for them to authentically and genuinely want to follow you, even as as Colin Powell said, a leader will have people follow them, even if only out of curiosity. Mm. So if I haven't created that type of culture where people know I'm here for you, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to attune to you. I'm going to show empathy towards you. I'm not going to judge you. 
I'm going to help you. Even when I see you at your worst, I'm not going to point a finger. I'm not going to judge. I'm going to help. That's what builds that bridge of people truly wanting to open up their ears to listen. But if I feel like I'm the truth and no matter what I say, even if what you're saying is right, doesn't matter. If it's not received and applied, it doesn't help them. So if our heart, if the objective is to help, then we have to understand as a leader, what do I have to do to get the person to hear, receive, and apply what I'm trying to share with them and make sure that there's nothing in my life that's causing uh, the message to be missed. Almost like you can have pure water, but if the hose is dirty, yeah. You can have dirty water. Yeah. And a, a lot of times what's happening is people are saying, okay, you're saying this, but I see this in your life. I see that. And I see you being a hypocrite in this area. And and because full transparency, people will see all of us. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. It's the issues that we act like we don't have that causes us to lose credibility with the people around us. Yeah, it's a lot easier to say, hey, Here's a short, or not easier. It's a lot more. What's the term I'm looking for? It just humanizes you when you acknowledge your faults. When people know that you understand what it's like to be in their shoes. When people know that you don't see yourself as, as though you're on some pedestal looking down, but you're someone that man, I've been in your shoes. Man, I remember when I went through that. I remember when I felt that way. You know, I remember when I felt rejected or abandoned or whatever. When people, when you connect on an emotional level, people's emotions are the breadcrumbs to their heart. So if I truly want to lead, I have to have your heart. Yep. And when I, when I know I've connected with your emotion, now people feel like you've heard me. Well, that's, it's interesting. My dad said something this past weekend. So my great grandfather was very, very beloved. So this is my dad's dad's dad. And he was so beloved that everybody called him Tata, which is Serbian for dad. Everybody. It didn't matter if you were a neighbor's kid. It didn't matter if you were a third cousin. It didn't matter if you were a third cousin's kid. Tata. Tata Milan. And everybody came to him for advice from like the region. Like he was just a very respected man. And my dad told me, he said, one thing that was very, that, that stood out to him, even as a little kid listening to his grandfather giving advice, he never said, you should do. Mm. His response always was, Freddie, with everything you've told me, if I was you, here's what I would do. Mm. And that's a small difference. But it's a big difference. But it's a huge difference. It, it's It's so big. And that's that emotional connection. It's not, it's not pointing at somebody and saying, do this. It's saying, look, considering the facts of, of what you told me, if I was you, I think this is what I would do. And that's why I always say our words matter. Our words really do matter. And think, think about what you're saying and think about how you connect them with people. And that's so crucial because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all in this life together trying to figure it out. We're all trying to unlock the champion. Yeah. Okay. And it makes it so much easier when we can connect to each other. Um, briefly, talk about Unlock the Champion. I know it, it ties into everything we've already talked about, but obviously this is 
you know, your, uh, your baby that you've created from the ground up. So, yeah. yeah so we just focus on character and leadership development, um, across the board, whether or not it's, we've been in locker rooms to boardrooms yep. because these conversations are human conversations. Yes. There's a platform that we've been able to build out athletically with, you know, colleges and pro teams and things of that nature. But one of the things we found is these are the same conversations that are happening in that should be happening in every home, yep. uh, in every business, uh, especially for those that are called to lead at a higher and more effective way and sometimes can feel frustrated with with the outcomes that you're getting. And so walking people through the process of truly understanding your true worth and how to lead more authentically with the values. Because when you do that, when you're just present with yourself and you can just be authentic and transparent, that becomes like a magnet for people around you that will be more willing to open up, to to follow your leadership, and even for you personally to be able to walk more authentically in your purpose. Now, I tell you student athletes all the time, once you uncover and discover your gift and work your gift, your gift will work for you and it will never work a day of your life. Mm. So there's too many people that are working, trying to do things instead of working your gift. What are your natural God-given abilities? What comes easy to you? Work that yeah. and everything else works out. You don't even have to work for it. All you're doing is being present with what you love to do, what actually, what, what gives you energy every day. And when you do that, everything else will work itself out. And so that's what Unlock the Champion does. We help people unco- unearth and uncover those gifts, cultivate those gifts, and walk in your purpose as a result. I love it. I love it. So I always like to end, end these conversations with the same question. If you can go back to 18-year-old Freddie, knowing all that you know about Freddie and knowing all that you know just in general at this stage of your life, what is one piece of advice you would give 18-year-old Freddie if you could go back and talk to him right now? Mm. That's a really good question. I would probably say be patient. Be patient. Why? When you're young, you're so eager to want quick success. You want to see outcomes quickly. You, you don't necessarily appreciate the process. Mm. There is a process to lasting success. There's a process to lasting relationships. There's a process, a process for uh, a business that's going to work. Uh, all these things are processes that can never be shortcuts. And if you are just patient and make sure that the foundation that you're laying is the right foundation personally, relationally, academically, from your business, if you're doing the right things, the right things will always happen. It's when you're tempted to want to take a shortcut Mm. to get an outcome that you didn't really work for yet. Mm. You can't get the output that you didn't put the input for. Yeah. And so, Focus on the input. The output will take care of itself. I love it. Love it. Well, thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me. I think we'll continue this conversation at some point. I feel like there's a lot of avenues. As we're sitting here talking, I'm thinking, oh, man, I need to make like a side note and say we need to expand on this. But <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was a lot of fun. So I'll make sure to put all your information in the episode description, how people can get a hold of you, LinkedIn, Instagram, 
obviously your website, et cetera. Uh, for everybody listening, as always, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com, millennialmanhood at, C- millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com. If you got questions, concerns, constructive criticism, again, constructive, don't complain, offer a solution, uh, or slide in our DMs as, as you've been doing, but we'll uh, talk to you guys soon.